Good. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Y'all got your sweaters on, your jackets on. It, it's, it makes my heart sad. Uh, it is, what, 50 degrees outside. The wind is blowing. It is awful. Uh, which is a good time to tell y'all, I have a conference in Orlando this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right after, uh, all I got to do is preach this sermon and then I get on an airplane and it is sunny and 88. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I will have on flip-flops while y'all are taking your nap this afternoon. Uh, but uh, it's a Christian leadership conference, so I'll just be serving the Lord uh, in, in Orlando. Somebody has to. I say that understanding uh, something of how it sounds, uh, especially having read this week the story of a pastor, a uh, true story. Um, his name is Abraham. Pastor Abraham lives, serves, ministers on the border with Syria. Pastor Abraham uh, preaches in a place where it's very dangerous to be a Christian and very dangerous to preach at all. Uh, he preaches with a lot of, of course, uh, strong Muslim Neighbors, he preaches with a lot of ISIS presence. And um, Pastor Abraham admits that he struggles with a lot of fear. Rightfully so. His life is threatened on a daily basis. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it's his family that he fears for. The, 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 those who despise his preaching say that they'll kill him, that they'll kill his family, they'll kill his daughters. Uh, and, and so he struggles with fear. He says that one day he was working behind his house with an electric saw and the blade came off and hit him right in the mouth and it, and it bled. It was, it, was a, it was a bad wound, but, but he realized if it had gone a little bit lower, it would have cut his throat and he probably would have died from loss of blood. If it had gone higher, he would have lost his eyes, but it was right in his mouth. And he says at that point, he felt the Lord's voice very strongly say to him, I am the one who determines when your life will end. Do not be afraid. And he says, from that point on, he hasn't been afraid. Now, from that point on, I'd be, I'd be afraid of saws. I'd be afraid of everything. But he said, from that point on, he has not been afraid. He had been preaching in one of the Syrian refugee camps and uh, encouraging Muslims to believe in the name of Jesus and, and, and become Christians. And he had some success, but mostly people just were beginning to know who he was and that he was a Christian pastor. So one day, an ISIS fighter came into the Syrian camp. His name was Fadi. And Fadi had come to recruit young men to be ISIS fighters. And in the process of going from tent to tent, from family to family, all through that, that refugee camp, someone finally told Fadi about well, this Christian pastor who's also been trying to recruit us to, to follow him and join him as a Christian. His name is Abraham. And it enraged Fadi, he's an ISIS fighter, a, a radical Muslim who was determined that he would kill Abraham just to silence the, the voice of the gospel in the camp. So Fadi found out where Abraham lived and he approached Abraham's house to kill him. So Abraham looks up and, and Fadi's approaching this ISIS fighter with drawn sword. And Fadi says at that very moment, God's voice said to him one more time, do not be afraid. Speak directly to him. Speak strongly. Do not be afraid. And so even from a distance, Pastor Abraham began to speak to this man about Jesus. And by the time Fadi had approached Abraham, Fadi was trembling uncontrollably. 
Pastor Abraham laid his hand on his shoulder and said, listen to me. It is as if God himself is present here with you and God himself lays his hand on your shoulder and God is asking you, what is it that you want? Fadi, still trembling, said, I want salvation. And so Pastor Abraham told him how that Jesus would forgive all of his sins. Fadi did not become a Christian that day. He left. He returned one week later. (laughs) He came back to Pastor Abraham and he said, I've had this dream and it's terrifying me. Abraham said, what is the dream? He said, in the dream, you hand me an envelope with a message. But when I open the envelope, it begins to pour with blood. And then you keep telling me this blood is good. This blood is good, but I don't understand. Is this about my blood or, or your blood? Is this about my death or, or, or your death? Abraham said, it's, it's not my blood and it's not your blood. It's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. This blood is good. And this is the blood that purchases your salvation. And that's the day that Fadi, the ISIS fighter, prayed and turned his life over to Christ. One month ago, uh, Fadi was baptized in front of Pastor Abraham's church. In the meantime, he has led his wife to Christ, and he himself now goes through that Syrian refugee camp preaching the word of Jesus. Did I mention I'm going to Orlando this week? It's hard to understand how for some people following Christ sounds so much like following Christ in the New Testament. How for Pastor Abraham and now for Fadi, how following Christ involves a a, a radical surrender of life. And how following Christ results in a dramatic life change. And how following Christ requires an, an, an amazing level of commitment and risk and and danger. The thing is, that sounds so much like what being a Christian is like in the New Testament. But it looks almost nothing like our lives. It sounds almost nothing like us. Pastor Abraham and his congregation, they were risked their lives today on that Syrian border to, to worship Christ. Some of us almost didn't come because it was raining. There's something missing. There's something wrong. I'm not sure that we've altogether understood what salvation is. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter wants Christians to understand what salvation is. In reading today, perhaps we can be reminded and learn ourselves what has Christ done for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 13. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. 
And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. As a, as a pastor for all these years, I have heard the same story over and over and over, and I will hear it again, I'm sure, for the rest of my days. Um, it's, it's something like this. It's, it's a kind of testimony, but, but people will typically say, Pastor Tim, I, I made a decision for Christ when I was a kid. Um, I walked the aisle, or, you know, some people say, you know, all, all the kids in Bible school, I went with all my friends in Bible school, they all went down front, or, you know, I, I signed a card when I was a kid, um, and I always thought I was a Christian, and then sometime later, I had an experience that was more real, and, and, and that's when I feel like I really met Christ. But, you know, when was I saved? It's sort of interesting how we can live our lives and be so unsure of something that really shouldn't be so so hard to pin down. I think it has something to do with, with the way we share. I think it has something to do with the way we, we preach the gospel. I think it has something to do with what we've done with the gospel in the United States in, in, in our context. Uh, let me say this. In the gospel, in our time, the gospel has been reduced to an undemanding decision for Christ. We, we've reduced it. We've reduced it. And even when I say that, it doesn't really sound odd to some of you because this is all you've ever known and all you've ever heard, that, that a person should make a decision for Christ. We've, we've reduced the gospel to this so that all you ever really have to do is walk an aisle and maybe shake the preacher's hand. You come down and take the preacher's hand and, and, and somehow make that decision for Christ. And, and we've called that salvation. Or maybe you just, you know, after the service, you, you, you write your name on a card. You, you signed a card. And, and the day you signed that card, you just imagine that, that your soul was set free and, and that that was salvation. You understand what I'm saying? We've boiled it all down. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Now repeat this prayer after me. Now everybody who, raised, who prayed that prayer, now raise your hands and you raise your hands. And then, you know, now you're all Christians. And, and it's just amazing how we've done that because it really, the gospel hasn't been perverted in that way anywhere else. We've done that here. 
But we've managed to do that here. And as a result, we have a culture, we have a, an entire generation after generation of people who really haven't the foggiest idea what the gospel is about or really what it means to be a Christian. So even in church, even good church-going folks like you can sit here and just really not even be sure, just, just not even know. And you spend your whole life like this, just really not even really knowing if, if you're a Christian. Because honestly, we have made the gospel something that is just so incredibly undemanding. It, it's a simple decision for Christ. If you'll say yes, I'll call you a Christian, and I'll say that you'll go to heaven when you die. But understand that this is not the gospel. That this is not the gospel that, that the Bible preaches. It's certainly not what Jesus died for. That sort of bland decision for Christ that we often substitute and we call it the gospel. It's simply not the gospel at all. See, we offer this kind of faith without repentance. In other words, faith. I just say, do you believe? And you say, yes, I believe. And, and therefore, you know, sign the card, you're a Christian. But there's never, ever any actual turning from sins. You'll say that Jesus is the answer, but, but we never require you to actually be honest about what, what, the, what the question is or what the problems are. We just simply ask you to have faith, and so faith for you is just simply saying yes, but, but there's no repentance required. There's no actual life change that's even expected. I mean, you can call on Jesus' name, but you don't actually change the road that you're walking. And I'm telling you, there's no such thing as faith without repentance. But that's what we seem to offer. Faith without repentance, salvation without conversion. The word conversion just means change. Change. So I says, Pastor Tim, I made this decision when I was a teenager at camp. And I just wonder, am I a Christian now? Well, the honest answer is, is there change? I mean, that decision you made, was there change after that? I mean, did you call on Jesus' name, sign the card, shake the preacher's hand, and then walk away and live like hell? Because if you did, I have a strong question about your salvation. If there's no change, if there's no conversion, I mean, seriously, we say that Jesus comes into your life and he makes you a new creation, there's going to be a difference. And if you're not living a difference, if there's no measurable difference between you and everybody else in the world that does not know Jesus, I would want to really wonder if you know Jesus. There's a difference. You can't offer salvation that involves no conversion. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything's become new. So if in your life you, you, you claim to be a Christian, you, you identify as a Christian, but, but there's no difference between you and everybody who's not a Christian, I would wonder, because salvation brings conversion. Faith without repentance, salvation without conversion. Heaven with Jesus in the next life without obedience to him in this life. And see, that sort of sums up the way a lot of us think of our salvation. It's just heaven with Jesus when we die. Mostly that's all a lot of people are concerned to know. Uh, when I die, will I go to heaven? And just tell me I'm going to heaven. I, I don't want to go to hell. And so people expect that they can go to heaven with Jesus when they die in the next life. But in this present life, they don't have to give Jesus a second thought. You see, it, it doesn't work that way. Faith without repentance, salvation without conversion, heaven with Jesus in the next life, without obedience to him in this life. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. Please do not imagine for a moment that Jesus came and he died and he shed his blood just so that you could come to church when it's sunny outside. 
You must not think that that's the gospel. Jesus did not die for this. I, I, I downloaded an app on my phone. It, it's a, I don't do games. I don't like games. Really, I don't. But, but I downloaded this Sudoku app. Y'all know Sudoku? It's like a numbers game. Kind of addictive, kind of fun. So I downloaded it because it was free. Free. That is my price range. Free. I don't pay for apps. You know what I mean? It's free. So I downloaded the free, the free version, man. I'm just, I'm blowing up Sudoku, y'all, the free version, man. It's just awesome. Except while I'm playing it, it keeps interrupting me to tell me that there is a paid version. And if I want to, I could pay for it. And then I get levels of difficulty. Okay. So it stops me in the middle of my free, easy game of Sudoku to tell me that if I want, I could pay money and it gets harder. Who do they think they're talking to? <laughs> I pay money, it gets harder? Is that, a, is that some sort of sales technique? Does that work on anybody? People, I have a free, easy version already. It does everything I want to do. I can play Sudoku till Jesus comes. I can just keep on playing. And if they'll quit interrupting me to get me to pay for it, I would just love to just keep playing my free version. It's easy, it's free, it does everything that I want. Why would I pay money so it gets harder? Why would I pay for an upgrade? You see, I bring that up because I think this is the way a lot of people think about salvation. They think that there's like the free version, and that's the version they got. The free, easy version. Where you simply get, you know, faith without repentance, salvation without conversion, heaven with Jesus in the next life, but Jesus is not going to be up in your business in this life. You know, that's the free, easy version. They imagine, why would I want anything more? Why would I pay, you know, why would I upgrade where it actually requires discipleship? You know, why would I want salvation that actually demands that I surrender my life to him. Why would I want, you know, to somehow have to live a life with obedience, you know, in this life to get to get heaven, you know? You've got the free, easy version. You can't even imagine the upgrade. I'm telling you, there is no easy version. This is not the, the gospel. And I'm not sure that, that it's even possible to get some people to understand this. Jesus did not die to give you the, the easy version of salvation. Now, it is free. I'm telling you that the gift is free. Jesus himself paid for your salvation. He, he satisfied every requirement so that you could have eternal life. I'm not saying that it's not free, but just because it's free doesn't mean it is not costly. This is exactly what Peter is trying to, to, to drive home here. He wants the believers to understand what salvation is like. And part of understanding the nature of salvation is, is first off to understand what salvation cost. Yes, it's by grace. Yes, it's a free gift. All you have to do is believe and receive it. Absolutely. But you must not imagine that because it's free, that makes it cheap. You ever notice that things that are free, we tend to treat them like they're cheap. All those samples they hand out at the grocery store, you know, just little cups of weird stuff, but you take it because it's free. But then you take one little sip or one little bite, it's like, ugh, you know? So that's why on sample day at Myers, there's like little weird cups of bites of junk just sitting around everywhere. Because you taste it, and you sit it down by the cereal and keep walking. 
See, it's free to you, so therefore it's cheap to you. You, you can just drop it, leave it, you know, spit it, you know, but because it didn't cost you anything. I'm telling you that just because salvation doesn't cost you anything, that doesn't make it cheap. And this is what Peter's trying to drive home. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited. He paid a ransom to save you, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Understand, Christ paid a priceless ransom for your empty, worthless life. Now, in the economy of the gospel, this wouldn't sound like a very good deal for Christ. He pays a priceless ransom, priceless ransom in order to purchase me and you, and we are worthless, worthless. I mean, joke's on him, right? We are worthless. He sheds his precious blood, and what does he get for it? You and me. The only thing that makes us worthy at all is the fact that he loves us. The only thing that makes this worth it is the fact that Jesus says it's worth it. He would die for you. He loves you. And he has given everything necessary for your salvation. That's the point. Your salvation costs him everything. It cost him everything. So it's free to you. That doesn't make it cheap. Do you understand what your salvation cost him? So then Peter goes on. So now you must be holy, verse 15. You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Now, you must be holy. It's not like an option. It doesn't say you really ought to consider being a better person. It's not saying, you know, one of the upgrades here, one of the options is you could, you know, try to be holy. No, you must be holy. It's the only proper response to this God who's given everything to save you now that he saved you. You need to respond with a life of holiness. You must be holy. There is absolutely no option for salvation that doesn't result in a new life of obeying Christ. There's no option. There's no option. It's not like you get to walk the aisle, sign a card, and then you call yourself a Christian, but you don't have to live like Christ. That's not an option. That's not the gospel, and that's not salvation. Understand? Signing a card, that's not salvation. Salvation is a, is a, is a response of following Jesus that always results in a life of obedience to him. It's, it's, it's obedience. So many of us, we, we, we identify ourselves as, as Christians, but we don't consider Christ in, in anything we do, in anything we say. We don't resemble him. I was talking to an atheist young man very recently, and he was telling me how he didn't believe in God. But the longer he talked, I realized, I don't, I don't think it's God that he doesn't have faith in. I really think it's, it's the church, it's Christians. Because the stories he was telling me weren't stories about disappointment with God. It's stories about people who call themselves Christians who live like the devil. You know, he's talking about the, the lady at Walmart who nearly pushed him down to get in front of her. And then he demanded that, that he respect her because she's a Christian woman. You know, good night. Good night. Do you understand? There's nothing that makes the gospel seem more ridiculous in the world than those of us who take the name of Jesus, but we do not live after the example of Jesus. It makes the gospel seem ridiculous and completely unbelievable. 
That there's no option for salvation that doesn't result in a life of imitating and obeying Christ. But, but notice what Peter says. Notice what he says. You must live as God's obedient children, verse 14. Don't slip back into your old way of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do. See, the, the ten, he's talking to Christians, and even for us, the tendency is to slip back into the old way of life. And what's the old way of life like? Well, what's it about? What does he say? The old way of life is following your own desires, just living after your own desires. Now, that doesn't sound shocking because it's not shocking. That's what everybody does. And even as believers, it's our tendency. It's what we have to strive not to do. The tendency is just to try to make the best life you can make for yourself by doing what, what seems right to you. You understand? Just You're trying to do the best you can with what you got, with what seems right to you. That's what everybody does. But Peter says specifically, this is what you can't try to do. You can't try to make your own best life after what, what you want, after what seems right to you. Because for two reasons. First off, you're really not very good with desires. You're not very good at, at even controlling your own desires. You've probably got some desires that aren't necessarily wrong. Some of your desires are good. You desire to be a, a good husband, a faithful daughter. You, you desire to be a, a really awesome mother. Now, I desire to be a great pastor. We have all kinds of desires that aren't necessarily wrong. The, the problem is we don't have the power to do it. I really, really do want to be a better man. You really do want to be a good woman. You really tell yourself, I'm going to be different. Tomorrow I'll be different. I mean, whatever hurts and hang-ups and habits you have, you've tried to put them down a thousand times. You really, really do want to put it down. But you're not very good at that. How many times have you quit drinking now, sir? I mean, how many times have you quit? How many times have you said, I'm never, ever going to pick that up again? How many times have you given up pornography, sir? I mean, how many times have you turned over a new leaf saying, I'm I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be a better person. You can't do it. If you could have been a better person, you'd have been a better person by now. It's not in your power. So it's not that your desires are always bad. The point is you just lack power and it's not in you. You, you, You're not going to do this. You cannot make the best life for yourself because that's not power that you have. It's not just that you lack the power. The other part is following your own desires. You're not even very good with desires. I'm not either. I mean, I want some good things, but then I want some bad. I mean, I want things that are the opposite of the good things I say I want. I mean, I want things contradictory. That's why you really, really want to have a strong marriage, but then you go after the things that you desire. And when you follow your desires, it'll take you in the opposite direction of the marriage that you wanted. You experience that? I mean, when you just let it fly and you say the things that you like to say, all of a sudden, you don't have people in your life who love you anymore. I'm telling you, you follow what you desire, and all of a sudden, it takes you in the opposite direction of all the things that you thought you wanted. We're not very good with desires. Our tendency is to not really know what we most deeply need. Sometimes we don't even know what we want. I mean, that's me all day long. You know, Father's Day's coming up. Wade says, Dad, what do you want for Father's Day? It's like, I don't know, but make it awesome, you know? I, I don't know what I want. I, I don't, I can't think of anything I want, but, you know, Father's Day comes around, you better come through with something, and, and it needs to be good. I mean, you know, make it good, but I can't help you. 
You know, I'm like Don Harris. My dad is right there. My dad, you can't give him anything. There's nothing he wants. If you give him something, he'll just put it in the back of his closet. I mean, he doesn't, I mean, the, cl- the clothes he's wearing, he was wearing when Jimmy Carter was president. I mean, you guys, um, it's the truth. It's, it's just, it's just the truth. You can't give dad tools that he wants because he has all the tools that he thinks he wants. So my trick is to give dad tools I want, you know, and then I borrow those, but borrow those back. I don't know what I want, but I still can't quit wanting. That's why you go window shopping, you know. It's why some of you are, are shopping for bathing suits right now while I'm talking. You know, you, you, you can't turn it off, this desire to want. And, and this is what Peter says, you can't slip back into that kind of life. But, but because when you go after the things that you think you want, it will inevitably destroy you. I think I'm quoting scripture there. There is a way that seems right to you, but the end of that always leads to destruction. You, you can't do this without Christ. You're not going to put this life together on your own. You, you, you can't. Understand, if you could do it, you would have already done it. And if you could do it on your own, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But, but, but Jesus died. Understand, he pays this ransom. It is his own life. He dies for your salvation, and your salvation costs him everything. Everything. So you must live a holy life in everything that you do. He goes on to say, verse 17, And remember that the Heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him. You must live in reverent fear. And he's talking to Christians. We all love God, and we know that God loves us, but that doesn't cause us to lose this healthy fear of him. We still know who he is. We still know his greatness, his majesty, his power, his awesomeness. We don't think for a moment that we're going to put him in our pocket. We don't think for a moment that somehow we're going to call it salvation, but he's just going to sort of come along behind us and sweep up our messes. It doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. You fear him. You understand who he is and the power that belongs in his hands. And you don't think for a moment that you can just thumb your nose at him. You don't think that you can live a life of disobedience to a God who has the power over your life. Don't think for a moment that this is not a God to be feared, that this is a God to be trifled with. He's God. You must live in reverent fear of him during this time of your temporary residence because you know that God paid a ransom to save you and it was the precious blood of Christ. I hear the same story all the time. You know, a kid comes back from camp and says, oh, there's a campfire and Oh, wow, I just felt so good. We were singing songs. And, you know, at, at that point, I, I told God I want to be a missionary. And they come back to church. They fill the stage, kids from camp. And I love kids. I love camp. But, but the problem is what they call salvation was really just um, an emotional thing. It's it just like getting the shivers at camp, you know, the warm fuzzies. Jesus died. He gave everything. But he did not die just so you could have, the, you know, the fuzzies and the shivers. Salvation is not an emotional thing. And, and if all you want is an emotional thing, if you think salvation is about an emotional thing, then, you know, every time, you, you know, we sing the right song at church, man, you're going to get the shivers and you're going to think, praise the Lord. But you understand, that's not salvation. He didn't just die so you could have some sort of emotional thing. 
Don't mistake an emotional experience, you know, around the church with some sort of salvation experience. It's not the same thing. That's not the gospel. Jesus died to give you salvation, but he didn't die just to be the answer to your problems. Now, he is the answer to your problems. I mean, certainly you're not the answer. He's the answer. But the problem is often we just think that salvation is a matter of of having Jesus like in our back pocket. So if I have a problem, then I can call on him. It's sort of like having him like on speed dial. So if you need him, you call him. But if you don't call him, he can just sort of stay out of your business. That's the problem with thinking that he's just there for your problems. You only call on him when you think you have one. That's not salvation. Jesus is not like your heavenly errand boy. He's not like your butler that you just call him and he comes. And if you have a mess for him to clean up, he'll clean up your mess. But then you expect him to disappear somewhere. That's not salvation. He's not just the answer to your problems. He is the answer. But your problems go a lot deeper than you know. I was a kid. There was a bumper sticker that was popular. It said, Jesus is my co-pilot. What's a co-pilot? I'm about to be on an airplane. Help me. What's a co-pilot? There's apparently the pilot and the co-pilot. What's the co-pilot? He's the pilot's assistant. Pilot's assistant. So I imagine it's mostly the pilot flying the plane. And I'm not saying the co-pilot's a dummy, but the pilot's flying the plane and the co-pilot's assisting. So I don't know what you need assistance with. You know, here, hold this, you know, whatever. Or, hey, I need to go to the bathroom, you know, keep this thing in the air, you know. But it still sounds like if Jesus is a co-pilot, you still think you're flying this thing. You still think you got the controls. And Jesus did not die on the cross to be your co-pilot. You understand that? Heard one of the old preachers say, if Jesus is your co-pilot, switch seats. What's that mean? Switch seats. Yeah. Let him pilot. If, if one of you just needs to sit in the seat and be quiet and ride, let's let that be you. Let's let him be the one with the control. Let's let him keep this whole thing in the air. Let's let Jesus pilot your life. He did not die on the cross to be your co-pilot. Jesus didn't die on the cross so he can serve in some sort of advisory role in your life where you can just sort of ask him and he'll give you advice sort of like a magic eight ball. No. No, that's not the gospel. That's not salvation. Well, what I'm saying is, you need to give Jesus what he paid for. Now, your salvation costs Jesus everything. It costs him everything. And what he purchased with his own life was you. He ransomed you. He purchased your life, which means now, because of his perfect sacrifice, you belong to him. You belong to him. He doesn't belong to you. You belong to him. He bought you. He purchased you. So give him what he paid for. He paid everything. He gave everything for you. So you give him everything. We're not just talking about your church life. We're not just talking about your religious life. We're talking about your life life. It belongs to him. You give it to him. All of it. Everything. This is salvation. It's a free gift. I understand it's a free gift. And Jesus himself paid for it. He paid for it. But what he paid for is your life. And if you want to enjoy this free gift of salvation, you have to give him your life so he can save you. You give him what he paid for, and then you receive what he died to give you. You you receive it. 
And what he intends to give you is a whole new life. What he intends to give you is a whole way of thinking, a whole different way of speaking, a whole different way of being in relationships with people. It's a whole different way of being in the world. If anyone is in Christ, that's a new creation. He gave his life for your life so that you could have his life. Understand? You die with him so that you can be raised with him to live a new life. You give him what he paid for and receive what he died to give you. This, I believe, is the gospel. You signed a card, you say, when you were six or seven. What did that mean to you? And and what is the difference that that experience made in your life? Because I'm afraid that the difference that makes no difference, probably makes no difference. You understand? You say that at some point you were at camp and you had this incredible emotional experience, but after that, you know, you sort of went on and did your own thing. Jesus didn't die just so that you could have an experience at camp. He didn't die just so you could come to church on Sunday if the weather's nice. You understand? He died to save you. He, he gave his life that you might have life. This is the gospel. Pray with me. So Jesus, um, Somewhere on the other side of the world, Pastor Abraham and his congregation are worshiping right now the Syrian border outside of a refugee camp. Pastor Abraham battles fear. He knows that preaching could cost him his life. He knows that saying the name of Jesus to an ISIS fighter could cost him his head. He even knows that while he preaches today with his congregation that Men could go to his house and slaughter his family. And yet he preaches. Nothing will silence the word of the gospel in his mouth. So, Lord, help us to understand ourselves. Help us understand, Lord, why it is that while Pastor Abraham would would preach boldly even facing death, Lord, some of us won't say the name of Jesus if we're simply afraid that it might be awkward, that we might be embarrassed. Lord, there are those who make great commitments to Christ and serve him with complete surrender and abandon, Lord, but some of us have somehow imagined that we have a freer, easier version of salvation where we're still allowed to do our own thing. Lord, there may be men and women in this congregation today who have identified themselves as Christians, but they do not know you, O Jesus. They don't even want you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will stir in their hearts that they may learn to want you and the life that you offer them, the life that you have died to give them. Lord, I pray that those who simply identify as Christians will soon learn, Lord, that much, much more is needed. 
Jesus, I pray that you would save souls in this house, save souls, Lord, around us. May the true gospel be preached and believed and received, Lord, in this house, even now as we pray. I pray for those, Lord, who struggle with doubts. Lord, I pray for those who are never sure. I pray for those who've never changed. Lord, I just simply pray that the power of the gospel will be unleashed in this place and in our lives. We pray these things for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of our own souls. Amen. Stand together. Altar's open if you wish to come and pray. If, if you want to talk about these matters with me, I don't know that we can settle everything during a song, but we can start a conversation that we can finish the, later. Uh, you need to know, you shouldn't live a life of being unsure and unchanged when it comes to the gospel. You need to know that you belong to Christ and that he belongs to you. You can be sure, you can, you can follow him today. You can at least take the first step down the road if you will simply come to him. Come. Jesus, even as we sing, come.